Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. You know the name, you've seen his work. Longtime coach, academic, and author Cal Deeds joins us this week to talk triphasic with the crew. It won't surprise you that the efficacy of triphasic in any power program is hugely dependent on proper nutrition and recovery. But how tight is too tight for great power potential? And where is the happy median for optimal muscle contractions? Cal brings a ton of knowledge and case study to the table as he discusses the optimal ranges of motion for sport. What about the quarter squat and knees over toes position primes an athlete for power? Additionally, his experience tinkering with loads and percentages may challenge what you thought you knew about working within a certain range for speed work. If you had $100,000 worth of testing equipment to delve into the individual adaptation of each of your athletes, you might just be half as smart as this week's guest. This is episode 232. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? We are here with another episode of the premier podcast in strength and and conditioning. conditioning. And first and foremost, public service announcements. You got Tex, you got John. We have obviously a much smarter than us guest. Um, First time ever. First time ever guest as well. This isn't a repeater, bitches. So tune in and get ready. But first... Power Athlete Symposium is going off. Listen, I've been getting emails from some of you about thinking it's sold out. It is sold out, but only the Sunday morning practical session with Ingrid Markham, Roth Ruiz, Dr. Tom Incladon, and Mike Wasserlisten of Move You. They're going to have a 45-minute segment each, and unfortunately, we just are at capacity. We cannot let anyone else in on that. However, the other speakers, which also include Dr. Tom, these guys and gals are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You still can access that. You can still come hang out with us Friday night for a little cocktail party. This is called the second wave of tickets, and they're out there at powerathletehq.com symposium. So, yeah, it's kind of sold out, but not really. So it's still going to be a killer time. Uh, text this week, which will be last week when you listen to this, right? Yeah. It's complicated. Time's a flat circle. But we should have some feedback on NSCA CEUs. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be able to line some of that up for you people. Uh, so stay tuned on that. Updates on that are going to come out via email in the Facebook group uh, for the symposium and probably some Instagram updates once we finalize what those CEUs look like, right? And in case you're wondering, what this is kind of like a steep price on a ticket, 250 bucks. I don't think so personally. I think it's way underpriced. But here's the thing about your admission. All proceeds from this event are going to, to our 501c3 charity, Wade's Army, right? So this is our, uh, our uh, how do I want to start this? This is our mission for the past five years to fight a nasty pediatric cancer called neuroblastoma, right? So this isn't going towards our party barge fund. It's not? <laughs> Damn it. I thought we were going to wrap the party barge in Wade's Army and just float around and uh, you know, know. listen to just... Uh, Sandstorm versus Blade. But then we wouldn't be any better than any other charities. That's true. We would be like every other charity. And unfortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you stand, we are one of those charities that gives every dollar to 
actually the people that we are claiming that we're raising it for. Instead of saying, you know what, we're going to keep 90% of ours so we can have bitch and party barges, we don't do that. What we do is we don't, with the money that we collect, we distribute it in the form of working with families. Uh, these families are in need. People are struggling. I mean, imagine there's only a few uh, cancer treatment centers around the country where they actually work with kids with neuroblastoma, and these families have to uproot their lives for their children and move out there. So um, a lot of times um, they'll apply for us for grants, and we uh, you know go through and uh, you know vet them out and you know see if we can help answer their prayers. And then the other one is uh, putting some clinical trials together, which is is interesting because a lot of the clinical trials are kind of bullshit. Yep. Uh, they're just trying to figure out a better way to deliver the drugs to the person, and they're uh. using a lot of people as guinea pigs. Um, and so we have to go out there and almost find the cancer um, you know, treatments or necessarily the, uh, the clinical trials that are actually going to help kids. Um, cancer's a nasty, nasty business. And unfortunately, with uh, this much money at stake, you got to be um, on the ball and know exactly where it's going. So if you were planning on coming to this symposium, you can kind of rest assured and, and stand proud that you're contributing to a cause that's truly greater than you, the group that's going to be there, you know, it's, so that's, what's great about it. And if you cannot make it that, that week, which is December 8th, 9th, and 10th, uh, you can still help out with Wade's army, head to wadesarmy.org uh, and you can strap on a uniform. We got our shirts available this year, uh, fighting neuroblastoma because that's what we have been doing and are doing. and will continue to do right. Or you can just make a donation there. And what I think is the coolest part is you get to select where your cash goes. And, right? Um, uh, well, you can select party barge. Actually, no, can we that add? Is not an option. Oh, I think we should add party barge. Party barge. Maybe people. You know, let's just put it out there and see what people want. Maybe they want to fund a uh, Wade's Army party barge. Well, Hoffer Osman's in. Yeah, <laughs> I know Hoffer Osman. Hoff, if you're listening, get on that. We, we're going to need at least 15k <laughs> out of you. So let's get party barging. Uh, and um, so not only are we having this amazing event with amazing speakers, and I'm using the word amazing like Donald Trump. It's a really amazing time. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's going to be a uh, opportunity to get. Uh, some really excellent information, kind of mainline some really, really heady stuff. I mean, in the years past, there hasn't been a person that has left the symposium without their mind blowing. Absolutely. And, and just kind of thinking back on, uh, you know, we did the very first one in, in our old power athlete, you know, little hovel. And now we kind of evolved, and, and I'm really excited for this one in Austin, Texas. So Yeah, the uh, venue's awesome. Yeah. You know. Come out and see us. Uh, what else? Um, oh, and the last SSA seminars That's are coming right. up. That's so right. for those of you guys that might not have heard, we have ended our relationship with CrossFit and we have two seminars coming up, one in Portland, Oregon, and then the final one at CrossFit Mayhem in Cooksville, Tennessee. Bit of irony, the very first public CrossFit football seminar, which was you know pre-SSA, was actually taught at Tennessee Tech in Cooksville uh, in uh, 2009. So here we are coming full circle, heading back to Cooksville to teach the final offering of SSA. So if you want to come, uh, here's some great information. Hang out with Tex and I, and uh, you know, here's some of the new talks I've been working on and whatnot, and um, come out and learn some great stuff about how to use this training for athletic performance translated into uh, a language and really a methodology you can understand from the CrossFit community. And so come this, on out. This episode with our guest Cal Dietz is dropping the third, November third. So if I'll see you in Portland tomorrow. If you're listening on Friday, <laughs> otherwise November 18th, 19th in Cooksville, Tennessee, which is going to rock. So make that happen. It's going to be worth the trip, people. Do it. So enough about us. Text spoiler. Our special guest today is Mr. Cal Dietz, uh, 
a man who has been dropping some seriously fucking potent research on um, the strength and conditioning community. Uh, I believe he's the f- invented the eccentric uh, he's muscle the father contraction. Of, yeah, yeah, he invented the eccentric contraction. He's <laughs> known as the father of eccentrics. And the question mark. And <laughs> yes, I believe the question mark, which yeah. we followed up ab- abruptly with the exclamation point, right? That was our inv- that's our con- contribution. I, I thought believe. we invented the ring push-up. That too. We have a lot of things in the patent office. No, but Cal, honestly, all jokes aside, man, I mean, you've been around uh, coaching at uh, University of Minnesota, correct? Yeah, I've been there for roughly 20 years and uh, dealt with many of the power athletes for in the Olympic sports and in the endurance. But my passion is obviously the power, and that's uh, that's where I get. Uh, I guess it's been trial and error. I've you know, I've made some mistakes. I won't admit that to my wife. But <laughs> well, she made right? one big one. Did she admit that one? Well, you know what? She won a gold medal in '98. Uh, met me, and it's been downhill with a silver after that. You Uh-oh. know, it's yeah, it's been pretty bad. It's been a yeah, like a 16-year slide at that point. So, but uh, you know, it's been good, great for me. So. But Cal, I guess give give us a so you've been there for the past twenty years, but maybe a little more background if maybe folks who don't know uh, kind of your origins, where you found this passage or passion. Was it a mistake? Did you fall into it? Was it something you've always been like dialed into? Yeah, you know, I, I've always had a passion for training in, in college. I I played two sports, wrestling and football, and then um, you know it was always a passion, and I got fortunate. Coaches identified that there were some phone calls made. Hey, do you got somebody that could be a GA? I went to the University of Minnesota, did my GA, which was, you know, obviously back in, what, 22 decades ago, the things that went on were, it was pretty crazy, you know, what was expected of you, the hours, you know, I had to get up, uh, obviously, I think 4.30 most days, one day it was 37 below zero when I walked to work, and you know, oh. there was, yeah. I, Beautiful I Minnesota. Was, I didn't know it was that cold, but I knew something was wrong. And <laughs> when I got there, they were like, ah, it's negative 37, but then, you know, and you. Yeah, but I, that's I with think, wind chill. Right. No, no, that was the, Oh, that was, that was, that was yeah. no wind chill. Well, the wind chill was about 60 or something, something like oh. that. So anyway, long story short, you know, I got my grad graduate degree during that time. I think I lost, I think it was about 60 pounds because I didn't have much money to eat, you know, and I don't know if today's a majority of today's kids would have gone through what I had to go through to get my degree, work normal hours, <clears throat> not have that much to eat. You know what I mean? I lived off those power bars John, you may remember the No, I, I, I just threw up a little in my mouth because you got to remember yeah. those power bars were made by a Berkeley grad. So he used to donate. bar. Uh, we had uh, uh, power bars and Powerade. And, dude, that was our what we subsided on right. in college was power bars and Powerade. They were like, hey, do you want a Powerade and Power Bar? To the part where I, is, when you said I wanted to throw Is up. that where Power yeah. Athlete came from, John? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> Are you convinced? John, uh, I stole that I from. I stole that from Cal Dietz. <laughs> that's uh, right. that's what I tell everybody. Be like, hey, uh, do you, you have remember? any research on that? I'm like, I stole it from Cal Dietz. So you have, you know, it has to be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you remember how hard they were to chew? Yeah, they were, uh, dude. They used to keep them in the refrigerator, which I thought was insane because uh, they were guaranteed to break a tooth. And they tasted awful. And, you know, that was the very first, like, pro- like any type of, like, meal replacement protein bar other than those god-awful metrics things that if you ate, you were probably going to die. Right. And you remember how – I mean, they made my mouth sore. They would also 
make the other end sore and i couldn't figure it out for like two weeks <laughs> well, you know I mean? well the, the only problem is is uh like if you ever had a cavity and had a filling it was coming out with those it things because they would stick with your teeth out. and you'd like pull them out and it pull the filling with you and you were like what the fuck like i had a uh one of the guys on our team had it came off with his crown so he had like a crown on his tooth and the fucking power bar took the crown off right Just, he pulled it off like digging his tooth and he's like i'm never eating these things again i'm like why they're our lifeblood <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah, they were terrible. And, and, and you're uh, obviously, so I lived off those and, uh, and then I, I, I found fiber supplements at that point <laughs> because I had to, I mean, there was just no way to get around there. Right. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, what, what transpired is I, I got a you know, got my, uh, got a job. I, I left, went to coach at my alma mater, university of Finley in Ohio. Then I got the job back uh, at the university of Minnesota being head of Olympic sports. And what transpired is I tried, um, I was, I was close to having triphasic figured out, but I would keep trying these methods on two main sports. Really it was track and field and swimming because everything is measurable. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, that I got results and we got some outstanding results if you read in the book and, uh, and then with throwers too. I mean, we had a great run with, you know, our throwers, these were, you know, big men that, that you that loved to train that attacked the bar violently. But long story short, through trial and error, I, I came up with the process of triphasic and just kept refining it. And I spoke about it 18 years ago. But it went a it went a good decade before I, I produced the book just because I'm sitting here going, you know what? People aren't getting it. It takes a little bit longer to explain it than a one hour conference. So you know so wait a minute. So you're telling me that you came up with the idea, you tested it for almost two decades before you put a book out. Yeah, pretty close. Wow, so that's kind of contrary to what most people do where they just write the book. Right. And then they <laughs> hope that people do the training. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's, yeah, I've been blessed and fortunate, you no, know. No, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy talk. I mean, you know, everybody knows you just got to invent it and write a book. Well, thousands of athletes, yeah, <laughs> right. Thousands of athletes have been my my guinea pigs, and I I thank them. People think I'm triphasic training. Well, it's thirty assistants and thousands of athletes that have been a part of this whole deal. It's mm -hmm. not just you know, and I have to give that credit. So, yeah. So Cal, let's say there's somebody out there listening who's like hasn't heard of the triphasic concept. Can you yeah. give them give them the elevator pitch and then go as deep as you want? Actually, I, don't, I mean I don't give a fuck. Right. Realistically, it's it's a two week. I read the book. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's it, honestly it's it's a basic six week concept of training where you don't have to do any other training, uh, change your training. You just add an eccentric component in the first two weeks. Then the next two weeks you add an isometric component, and then you just do your concentric, just your normal lifting up and down, and essentially that's that breaks any dynamic muscle action throwing a ball running has three components to it and that's what it does is it isolates those components makes each one of them stronger and essentially you get a greater performance output some of the parts yeah that, I mean, yeah exactly. uh, but uh, i mean uh if you think about it, i mean I, I remember in college uh, when we were trying to bench heavy i mean you know finishing off just about every single heavy max effort workout with some form of like overload where we would just basically do uh you know heavy centrics down to a board somebody would lift it up and hopefully it didn't sure. blow a peck hopefully hopefully <laughs> yeah well and and like in in hindsight uh as i think about it uh we should have i mean we didn't have access to any accommodating resistance but being able to use you know bands or chains and be able to handle that which seems to me might have been a smart
smarter way to attack it more so than just stacking on 45s. But I mean, can, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, I mean, obviously for those of you guys listening, there are three muscle contractions, which is a question we ask all the time at our seminar and how many people actually. Well, only one that matters, John, in December of 2009. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a true statement. I, I would always ask people, hey, you know, on basic physiology, can you uh, give me three muscle contractions? And most people would look at us like deer in the headlights other than Mr. Chris McQuilkin sitting over here in 2009 raised his hand and actually knew that. And I was like, oh, you must not come from the CrossFit community. And he didn't. He's like, actually, I'm, you know. This is what I'm doing. Play real sports. Play real sports. But I mean, so so the idea, I mean, people have used heavy concentrics and they've used isometric contractions to develop stability. I mean, how did you necessarily approach it and say, hey, you know what, these are something that we need to isolate. Did you see a deficiency within people's program that everything was just, you know, uh, accentuation phase concentric and... and Yeah, well, what I did was I identified the good athletes, right? And they could, they could basically, they had eccentric strength. And when I say good athletes, uh, like in my book, I use the example of two shot putters that bench exactly the same amount, right around 400, 440 or something like that. And uh, they were college level kids, but, but one could throw the shot put 10 feet farther. And I'm just trying to figure out like, how is that? And their legs were pretty much relatively the same strength. Well, they could just, the, 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 the elite kid could bring the, the weight down much faster and absorb that force with that eccentric strength that he had. And that's what kind of separating. So, so then the more force you can absorb when that, when you bring that bar down at a high speed and stop it, he could stretch his tendons, stretch his tissue, and then it would slingshot it back up for him. And that's what he was able to, to gather. And then the other kid that, that was 10 feet behind him in the shot put, when he went through that series, he got huge results in the shot put output. So you're setting going here. I, I was able to identify that the best kids had that joint stiffness qualities, many people term it, so that they can absorb that force when they're when they let's say they jump off a box. You know, that's a that's a three to five times body weight load instantaneously landing on the ground. If you can stop it quickly, you can re, you can jump quickly again. And that's the dynamic of sports. And the sooner you can can uh, grab that force and then reapply it because I mean really the tissue in the tendon is just a spring model complex and those two tissues have to work together and that's what triphasic does in the eccentric phase let's say for example it actually tears the the muscle apart the actomycin head for the the science people and it come the immune system comes in and rebuilds that and then it builds that tissue stronger so you become more resilient to injuries wow so the immune system is a major player in healing the body in terms of, uh, you know, training after training. Oh boy. Yeah. Wow. This I is, mean, this is, this is so, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just being a little sarcastic cause I mean, this sure, is something obviously. we speak on all the time. The idea that, you know, ramping up immune function is really how, you know, if you think yeah, about it's a catalyst how, for performance, yeah, it's a catalyst performance and the stronger the immune system, you can become like Wolverine by basically removing things that stress the nervous system and, uh, eventually hurt your, uh, immune, uh, immune function and like the window of the immune system being the small intestine and we go back and, and it's, uh, it's pretty interesting that when uh, we attack it from that idea and you start talking about developing and, um, you know, finding ways to ramp up immune function as a, as a way to, uh, you know, as a performance increase. Well, I'll be honest with you, John. If, uh, if your immune system's taxed and, taxed and stressed, you cannot recover from triphasic as fast. There's just no way. And then how to so did you run into athletes that that would have yes. that immune deficiency and then how what would you what would you what would you identify as the uh 
contributing factors to affecting that immune function? Well, the immune system. Um, did you do blood I testing? Used, yes, I did yeah. some blood, uh, much blood testing. Uh, and then actually, so then also you have to realize the eccentric phase will also activate the immune system because you, you have a large amount of stress on the body. So, um, but if it's healthy, then it kicks in and it sort of then heals it faster and you can manage more stress. So that immune system also I can track it literally uh, through the Omega Wave system. Hmm. Uh, it's a heart rate variability device. You guys know what I'm talking about, sure. obviously. I actually can predict, I was able to predict the flu three days out back to back years when the team was, when it was gonna run through the team. Because what happens is the body starts using more energy because the flu's in your body the body, the immune system starts grabbing more energy. So these kids were running low on fuel. Were they, uh, had they, had they been given blue, uh, flu shots? Uh, yeah, which I'm not, obviously well, yeah, I'm not I'm, I'm, Yeah, let's go I'm, there. Dude, no, no, I'm, I'm no. with you, man. I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, when I played in the NFL one year, uh, they mandated that everybody get a flu shot. Ugh. The whole fucking team got sick, and I've never been so sick in my life. And I told them the next year when they went when they went to line us up, I told the guy, I'm like, basically, find me. Go fuck yourself. I ain't taking your flu shot. I was one of the only people that didn't. Everybody else got sick, and I've never been sick since. And uh, well, like, I, I was, Not like that, right? I mean, no, I, no. Same I'm, thing. I, I've been sick since, but not like when I got that fucking flu shot. No, nah, like... dude, you get brutal. But um, on, on a side note, so, you know, uh, Dr. Bueller and his work with Amit, same deal. Um, when I went up and uh, had him work on me, I hadn't seen him in about a year. And all the changes and everything he'd done and the manipulations on muscles had uh, continued to fire. And uh, Doc was like, oh, I can tell uh, you've been eating well. I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, um, I know because uh, one of the largest breakdowns in the body, you know, comes from the small intestine. So if you eat a ton of gut ear intense and you're having a, um, you know, a diet that doesn't fall within these parameters, we know it'll, it'll trigger uh, increased immune function and damage. And then the muscles will not continue to fire the same way. And I have to go back and redo the work to the point where he, where he stopped working with vegans and, and vegetarians or people that didn't eat a diet consistent with what we talked about. There's no question. I mean, I, I well, it just the vegetarians or I mean, the low carb diet, like itself, like, I, I don't mind it. But but what happens is it actually kicks down the uh, I had a few athletes. So I, I follow recovery with heart rate variability. And these athletes were having problems. And when they went to the low carb diet, their immune system, or uh, their whole metabolic system shifted, and they couldn't recover as fast. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And then the vegans, I mean, they're, they're, they're actually to me, the ones I've tracked are sympathetic and the ones I've tested are sympathetic because their body's trying to constantly heal Sure, because it's not getting at, at adequate protein. It's, uh, right. it's missing micronutrients. It's not, I mean, the, um, exactly. the, the interesting thing, especially, you know, when we looked at in terms of, uh, how to recover the CNS faster, we found two things. One was static stretching post-workout and two is eat some carbs. You know, following carbohydrates in, in a post-workout environment will actually um, decrease that parasympathetic nervous system and actually boost immune function. And I well, know that's part of the deal, too, especially with, uh, like, the ketogenic guys with their, with their training stuff. I mean, they just really kind of struggle in terms of um, some of that immune function stuff. Well, I mean, that nervous system, it's, it's obviously its main fuels is uh, carbs, right? We know this. And the, the problem becomes that if, if, if it's not there it starts to go into survival mode, yeah. which is a sympathetic state. Hunt for food, hunt for food, hunt for food. You see what I'm saying? And and like, I don't want to say that some of these tools that I have can track it, but I, there's huge correlation. 
-hmm. So I can track it. You know what I mean? When I can catch a shift in, in low carb diet, when a guy's eating normal recovering and all of a sudden there's, there's, there's five days, five days into that. I'm like, something's wrong with this guy. And I start talking to him. He said, well, you know, I went low carb with my wife. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. She, she's not playing 80 games in the NHL, brother. She can do that. Yeah. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, but uh, there, there's something in, and I, I kind of figured this out and uh, we talked about it last week when we were, or two weeks ago when we were on the podcast, the idea that as somebody ages, I think they're in a bit, or they develop develop less ability to process carbohydrate and so there's some some idea that the idea that uh um that you can periodize your diet as you age that you know because i i think of the way that i ate in my 20s um i couldn't eat that way today i mean i just couldn't eat the volume of food because i don't right. do the i don't do the amount of training i don't i mean even when i went and got my base uh basal metabolic rate done i mean it's decreased i mean we, we just know that as you age uh, you know what you did in your 20s is you know doesn't necessarily work in your 40s at least for a um, you know, natural type athlete, unless you're, you know, fucking burning the candle at both ends. Well, exactly. And, you know, ultimately, as you know, if you optimize your insulin sensitivity and your, your thyroid, I mean, this all, it runs into a huge, I mean, everything's entangled. There's like 15 different parameters. That's all. So nothing exists. Yeah. Nothing exists in a vacuum. No. Right. So you're, you're just sitting here going, well, um, there's a reason for it. Now, if you can get a doctor that's willing to test it, optimize you, then that helps. But, you know, ultimately we're, we're going to sit here and go, if your nutrition is not right, if you're not, if you're not following things correctly, I mean, and then there's, there's health issues such as histamine problems later in life or things you become allergic to, you know, as we, we can go on and on with that. But these are all factors that are affecting your stress and your resilience to, to train and stay healthy over time. There's a reason you break. Eventually we find, I find the reason they broke and I try to fix that, or I actually hope to prevent it before. So, I mean, how, um, in terms of that breaking, I mean, so, um, you know, if we kind of isolate factors, you say, okay, nutrition is one, uh, sleeping the other one, and then probably the, the third part of that would be training. How many times do you see somebody break from the training as a result of the training and not, uh, or, or do you most of the time see people break because the nutrition and sleep is off? Nutrition and sleep. Well, it's, it's again, all composite, but nutrition and sleep is obviously your first major fixes. But then, you know, as you guys know, I use the RPR system and what transpires is I can now identify kids coming in with compensation patterns, uh, muscle patterns that aren't working correctly. Now, here's the, pro here's the great thing about the RPR is I'm actually able to help that athlete fix that pattern and, and, and correct it. So then when they start training heavy, I don't get blamed for the error. Like those kids brought that problem in, but now that they're training hard and they're moving heavy weight or explosively, I'm the one, if they break, then they have a problem. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So yeah. when I evaluate my kids, when they walk in, I'll send the coaches an email. Hey, this kid's probably going to have knee problems. First time we've seen him, his quads are super tight. This, his psoas isn't working. So here's a classic. The psoas has literally no strength to do hip flexion. So what, what, what does hip flexion, your abs and the, the, the quad, these kids walk in with these big juicy quads and what, why? Because the quad now does hip extension, helps with hip extension and knee extension okay, or hip flexion and knee extension. So this is why the quad is adapted and gotten big. And it's not always the case, right? Sure. It's not always the case. But then the problem is, is when the kid starts practicing, now we throw him into camp and he's never trained or he has that psoas that's not working correctly, the, the knee starts to get some tendonitis and have knee pain. Well, it's because the quad is doing all this extra Everything. work. 
Sure. Yes, everything, right? Because here's the deal. If you're, it's a survival mechanism. These compensation patterns, if you, people don't think they exist, like, well, what happens if my psoas doesn't work? If I can't hit flex my hip, I will die. I cannot hunt for food. That's no. survival well, number one. Well, the idea too, and uh, I always remember Bueller telling me, because um, I asked him, I'm like, you know, uh, when I went through his testing, he figured out that there were like 153 muscles on me that had shut down. And I asked Doc, I'm like, I started 16 games in the NFL last year. How is this happening? And he said that the world's best athletes um, are in the position they are in, not because they're the best, but because they've learned to compensate around injury better than anybody else. So yep. he goes, you have these guys that are able to, you know, you turn off a muscle and your performance doesn't change. Somebody else turns off a muscle and they can't do anything. And he said the world's best athletes are the ones that can find a way to compensate around it. They change uh, structure, foot. I mean, you, he goes, your body will inherently find the best way to do it with what you're working with. And he goes, so if all of a sudden you take the world's best athletes and now you turn everything back on, he goes, then that's all of a sudden when the magic happens. The magic happens and then they can handle more force and function. And what you'll see, I'm sure he's seen is we have the same practice that a kid who's went through and got loads and heart rate. And if everything's turned on, the heart beats 20 beats lower during the whole practice because you're moving more efficiently now. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the big thing with this is, I mean, it, it, it's pretty amazing when you can get the body working correctly. And, and again, I, I agree with Bueller. Those, those conversation patterns, um, the best athletes do it the best that can still perform. And um, people do don't have a hard time grasping that. Do you, uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit offline about it, but I mean, um, in terms of the idea of, uh, you know, I mean, there's been this huge resurgence, especially in the community in which we work in with, you know, Mobility Wad, Ram Wad, and all these people, I mean, basically pushing these uh, pretty extensive kind of yoga, Ashanti, uh, you know, stretching, you know, kind of over, uh, over prescribing it to some extent, you know, pretty heavy. Um, does the average person and do the most of the athletes that are out there trained today, I mean, that really don't have a, a ton of volume on the backside. I mean, because a lot of the athletes we run into, uh, you know, sort of training in their 20s and yeah, 30s and a little bit later. Yeah, like later adopters. And now they think that, you know, what's their limiting factor is mobility. So I'm going to do these extensive stretching programs. And uh, a lot of times um, that isn't their major problem. Um, you know, can we get into the idea of uh, maybe that, you know, too much mobility and not enough stability equals some major problems? Well, um, put it this way, the world's, I mean, some of the best athletes I've ever seen are the tightest SOBs I've ever dealt with, right? And that's because there's a stretch reflex. So when their leg strikes the ground, that tissue has a stiffness quality that will return free energy. So if you're really stiff, the best animal running animals in the world, because they're stiff, and they never stretch, by the way, maybe, maybe once in the morning for 30 seconds, right? Um, they return as much as 40 to 50% free energy return. So they actually spend less energy. Now, do they need to be a great athlete? I mean, the problem is with, with people is if you're tight, let's say your hamstring's tight, people think, oh, I got to stretch my hamstring. What you're actually doing is if you don't take that hamstring, because why is it tight? Most likely it's the nervous system that's sympathetic to the hamstring, all the nerves around it. Now, what they do, it's simple as this. They stretch their hamstring they're simply in a stretching on a, uh, there's something out there. You could look it up micro stretch, micro, micro stretching. It's uh, basically on a 10 scales, extremely painful stretching. It's saying really you should stretch at a three because that'll calm the nervous system down. Anything above a three on a 10 scale being 10, extremely, extremely painful. They're saying causes an inflammation response. Why is that? Because you're damaging 
the tissue. So what are you doing with a tight hamstring that you're stretching? You're actually tearing it apart. Okay. You're actually giving micro tears. So then what happens? You go out and you run and then you pull your hamstring because you have micro tears in it. You're actually making the tissue worse. Okay. Now, if you can get that hamstring to relax, and that's what we do with RPR, usually a 10 second, like literally a 10 second intervention, whether that the athlete themselves or whether it's the coach, you can actually get 10 to 15 degrees increased mobility. And again, if you're, if you're, if your hamstrings super tight, what happens is the hamstring has only so much room to contract and it can't get a full contraction. So it's not going to be at its strongest potentially. And if it's super flexible, okay, every athlete that I've ever dealt with, it's super flexible, it's super weak. So you're not going to get a full uh, contraction and the ability to support whatever you're trying to do optimally. There's just no way. There's so, always that sweet spot. So, so what's the message to all those um, like very passionate stretchers out there, uh, what, whatever program they're following, whether, you know, I don't want to throw any names out there. Okay, fine. Yes. Mobility, water, ROM, what, right? Like, uh, which are probably well-intentioned. You know, these guys are well-intentioned. I don't think they're trying to uh, subversively, like, make these people perform worse. Like, are people like right now are probably listening like, fuck, I'm stretching, I'm doing it wrong. Like, what's the message, Cal? The message is, Pick, like I tell my athletes, my goalie's groin. They need to be flexible enough to get in the splits, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Don't get more flexible than you need to get into the positions you need to be in in sports. That's mm -hmm. it. Okay? If that's if you can get in your position and hold it correctly and, and do your sport, even if you're a little tight in that position, it's fine. So a normal person might say, well, am I mobile enough to get into the deep squat? Well, yes. Well, then – after that, you don't need to keep working on your mobility mm -hmm. if that's what you want to deep do is deep squat. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's absolutely. a good guy. There's also, you could probably benefit from, let's again, just let's say you have a mobility issue, a not so deep squat, like maybe a little above parallel. Like as long as you're getting well, range of motion and working towards range of motion, it's not like that squat doesn't count towards performance improvement as long as you're hitting some overload, some speed. Right. Well, the idea too, and um, what people fail to talk about is the idea of uh, passive versus active range of motion. So all of a sudden, you're putting in, you know, people in these passive deals. And we did this years ago when I first started my gym. Uh, we traded time with these uh, people from a yoga studio that wanted to do a little cross promotion. And uh, we, I went in and I did their Ashanti yoga, and these people were super flexible. They could do every move, and they were instructors. We bring them in the gym. We put. 65 pounds on their back and all of a sudden they can't even get near fucking parallel on a single squat they couldn't they had zero flexibility exactly. and I, I had like this was one of these like weird epiphanies and i'm like wait a minute i'm pretty sure these people can suck their own dick right <laughs> like I, I have no fucking doubt dude like yeah i mean they were level 99 supple leopards and but yet they couldn't maintain posture and position and they had no ability to to you know maintain or stabilize uh, weight in terms of eccentric concentric and you know the accentuation phases were slow and so I, I was like, you know, this is this is concerning, but the idea that uh, you know, if you think about uh, you know heavy eccentrics, like we're talking about triphasic, the idea of that now you're heavy, you know, doing a heavy eccentric, a stretching of the muscle. There's something, and I always said, hey man, if you need to stretch more, then let's do it under yeah. load and let's lift fucking yeah, weights through full range of motion and start working on on doing these type of things. The idea is just doing passive range of motion stretching as a active, you know, like if you want to cool your central nervous system post workout, you should do static stretching. Right. Uh, but basically putting a program in place that you're going to do this, 
I don't see it paying dividends for the, for the majority, and obviously there's going to be outliers. I don't see it paying dividends uh, for what most of these people's dysfunction is. Well, what, what I've seen with triphasic and what coaches, obviously, I, I didn't explain it, but coaches reported it too. When, when you take that load into, as you said, into the eccentric stretch, you're remodeling tissue, right? So you've remodeled that. So I saw posture improve. Okay, I saw gait improve because we're getting rid of those compensation patterns. And then once you've remodeled it eccentrically going slow down, the next phase is the isometric phase where you get into the weakest position and hold it and make it stronger in that weak position, which is another tissue remodeling phase. And then you've made that athlete super strong in their weakest position. And now you handle the weight and when the weight comes down and you reverse it, it reverses extremely fast and extremely explosive. And you just have a better person that has been remodeled, the tissue stronger, changed and completely functional in regards to handling stress. Well, the other one is, is um, you know, people have gotten, especially with the CrossFit deal, have gotten so in, wrapped up into this idea of increased work capacity. And so, you know, everything has to be measurable and repeatable and whatnot. And now all of a sudden you have somebody do heavy centrics or even a, you know, heavy form of isometric contractions. And there's no way for them to quantify that for their deal of fitness, which is the confusion factor, the idea of, you know, performance versus fitness. But I mean, we run into this idea that, uh, you know, there should be some uh, eventual, I guess you could say peaking for the training. There should be some goal associated with this. I mean, here you're remodeling the tissue, you're making people better. But, uh, you know, now you're talking about taking a long-term approach and really looking at it and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to use this phase so that eventually we can get into a, you know, uh, you know, like you said, it was like early in the off season and an idea to basically build upon so that we can get into some form of peaking for your season. Um, you know, how would somebody go about using this in terms of like, uh, you know, over the course of a year? I mean, is it just within a certain period or how would they, you know, drop triphasic into like, uh, if they're sure. not training for like, Hey, like there's no hockey season. Cause we run into people that are just kind of want to lift weights, general fitness training, and they're not really training for an end goal. More yeah, no so. event driven. Yeah. Yeah. It's not event driven. So how do you drop triphasic into something like that? Well, um, you know, with the six-week basic triphasic plan, I've had coaches call me and say, Cal, I tested week six and, you know, our verticals went down. I'm like, well, yeah, there's a super compensation thing that goes on. Like, wait two weeks and retest. They're like, I think I did it all wrong. I'm like, no, no. Like, just wait two weeks. And then they're like, lo lo and behold, they went up three to four inches. I'm like, yes, that's the super compensation. So for for a normal person, it's it's essentially, if you really look at it truly, each – each the triphasic phase i say six but it's nothing out of the ordinary it's just really two weeks of eccentrics two weeks of isos i would roughly do that twice a year to remodel your tissue twice mm. a year when you know you're going to have a, a good window of, of train uninterrupted training and then maybe a little less stress in your life because if you're your desk guy and you got a lot of stress and you're quarter year end and you're a tax man let's say you don't want to do triphasic during that phase because you're just adding more stress into your your whole body. You want to you want to have a, a time where there might be a little less stress, um, and then you you do that twice a year to remodel your tissue so that you have healthy tissue and you can keep training. Because the goal of training should be able to keep training when you're in that situation. Right. So Obviously. basically, doing it twelve times a year might not might yeah. not be advantageous. Like two weeks, 
two weeks of heavy centrics, two weeks of isometrics, two weeks off, and then you basically just keep that cadence going for yeah. uh, the entire year, and then you're going to send me an email. But what if I do it twice a day? Uh, dude, uh, this is uh, – so, so, I mean, we go uh, – like, like, uh, like we write a – I write a bodybuilding program called Jack Street, and in it we use some occlusion training, you know, as kind of just a yeah. finisher on it. You know, I mean, there's – you know, we can go on and talk about, the, uh, you know, a million different benefits of, of it. And I always talk about the idea that, you know, as you wrap, look for capillary refill you know no more than 15 or 20 minutes you don't have to fucking wrap to the point of uh you know dominatrix deal like just like fucking take it easy like and we had one dude who was doing it and uh, he's like well, what if i do it twice a day i'm like do it once he was doing it twice a day he started getting numbness in his fingertips sure. i told him to stop doing it what does he do he does it more. three times yeah three, three times training twice a day uh you know talking about his uh, hormone replacement on you know uh, like hey you know i'm taking all these drugs too and by the way i'm gonna uh you know jump in and do a figure show uh, so this is a dude or a physique show and i'm gonna diet sure. for it and then this and then uh and instantly it's like oh your training uh is um and then the guy gets fucked up and then he sends me this deal about how uh the training that we're i'm promoting and necessarily helping people with is uh not responsible because it ended in you know him just basically imploding and i was like do you want me to forward you the email where i told you a fucking year ago this was going to happen and so like here here comes down to like the question is uh you know with athletes who are uh, you know, under your toolage in terms of, you know, you monitoring this and they have a, you know, very definitive, you know, season, you know, young athletes or whatever. I mean, how, uh, like, this becomes the age-old question. Like, how do you take something that's, you know, as advanced, something like triphasic, where you're asking somebody to do heavy eccentrics and put it into, let's say, like uh, an average temp or an average person or more even a younger kid, like in a high school kind of situation? Right. Well, I've gotten a lot of emails. I mean, even at the high or junior high, what, what they found was they tried it to do it light. They did it light. And they found it actually is a really effective sequencing for, for teaching the kids the squat pattern is what they found at the young age. And and, and really, triphasic isn't going to work that well unless you go heavy because you actually have to cause, in the eccentric phase and the isometric, you have to cause some damage to the tissue. But it will work for motor learning sequencing, I would say. And then, you know, for a high school athlete, um, I would do it in the summer, maybe twice. Okay. Uh, the young kids, they got great hormones. They can handle it. Even my, my pros, obviously, they got great hormones or they wouldn't be there. And uh, they'll do it. Basically, my athletes will do it twice during the year just because of the season. We'll do a little bit of it in season just to retain those qualities. But like many powerlifters have come to me and said, Cal, when do I do this? Well, if you have a normal six-week peaking cycle you do before the meet, you want to do triphasic six week, the six weeks before that. So then you can develop those new tissues, and then the next six weeks up to your meet, do your normal peaking because you're going to have new tissues that you got to develop skill for in the sense of, let's say, you're a power lifter. Mm -hmm. So the same thing yeah. would go for a CrossFit um, person. You would want to do a triphasic cycle, start week 12 with the eccentrics, complete it for the next six weeks and then do a normal peaking or sports specificity for your event, whatever that may be. Now, I mean, I'm not sure people understand when I say specificity, I'm talking very specific event based stuff. So for example, a friend of mine, Hank uh, Karanoff, a sprint coach from the Netherlands, he told me this story of uh, um, one of his world, world record holders. She, she always got second in the hundred. She was a short, she wasn't the normal sprinter, but she she basically got second in the Olympics and world championships in the 100. And she would get caught at the end. And this is a story of specificity. So he's like, well, I'm going to run her at, you know, 150 yards, maybe um, 125 to, to get her 
better speed endurance. So he'd already broken up her hundred and timed it out in fifties. He's like, Cal, I did that. And what happened was she got two tenths faster on her second 50 of her, of her hundred meters. And I'm like, Oh really? That was good. He's like, yeah, but that specific, specificity of training caused her to get three tenths slower in the first oh, 50. Yeah. So, you know, and people are like, well, you could, you could maximum like, well, when you get to the highest, one of the fastest humans on the planet, she was a world record holder. There's very fine tuning that has to be done. So you couldn't merge those together. I mean, it, and I, I feel that he got the most out of her and, uh, by making her one tenth of a second slower, or one hundred. Right. Well, he obviously scrapped that because he was literally <laughs> one of the best coaches, speed coaches, in the uh, track coaches in the world that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Um, I just spent five days with him. He came over here, and I was very fortunate to. We uh, we traded uh, hundreds of books, and then uh, we went out, shot some guns. You know, spent about a thousand rounds one day just. Because he in his country, there's there's uh, they're not allowed to have guns. So I was like, you get over here, and we're gonna go shoot guns like men. So. <laughs> you the the ugly american oh these right? guns you yeah. know everybody in america has guns and they yeah. towed them around and shoot people yeah we did yeah uh, we, you know, we did fun stuff you know i like shooting out of cars and stuff like that off ATVs. <laughs> yeah, drive-bys i mean it's just standard yeah. minnesota right, practice yeah. be like hey you're roll like, up on these people <laughs> well you're like hey the targets that don't move or shoot back i mean that gets old quick right so you got uh, sticking with application, so one thing we invest a lot of time is is in alignment and force reduction, which uh, falls right in line with kind of the eccentric phase. And so with the application, you're asking coaches to observe different things to make sure they're in the right position. So what are some takeaways that coaches can immediately observe to their applying the eccentric phase properly? Well, um it gets a little, uh, I think, you know, if, if you just actually observe what they do in their sports, cause you know, I, I promote a sports back squat where the knees actually goes in front of the toes. Right. Because if you watch these guys jump, that's how they jump. Okay. So, um, I may not always squat like that because I found there's some exercise. If I'm doing eccentrically, I may choose a bodybuilding style squat because it's actually hitting the quads a little bit more. You know what I mean? So your knees don't go in front of toes and with the ISOs. But then when I get the sports specificity, I will actually make sure that they're in the right positions. So when somebody does a, a vertical jump, if your knees goes in front of your toes and your back stays parallel to your shins, you'll get the most out of their glutes firing at that time. That I mean, that was discovered 30 years ago, I believe, by Carmelo Bosco. And so that's how I squat for my sports specific stuff. If it's not specific, you can squat however you want, powerlifting, you know what I'm saying, whatever, yeah. whatever style you want, Olympic lifting. But I will not squat that deep because I've never seen an athlete in that position. I'm still waiting and I've been watching sports for 20 years, you know, and, and I got that from Dr. Yassis. I mean, he talked sure. about squatting that and that was 30 years ago he wrote about it in a soviet sports review but well it's didn't he talk about the idea of a gpp squat versus an spp squat the idea that you know a, a full range of motion squat below parallel would be their gpp and yes then, and then they talked about like you know a quarter squat or basically changing you know uh the the, the idea of uh, being able to reverse the weight in terms of the accentuation phase the faster the turnover and they, they realized they could handle heavier weight and do faster turnover with a quarter squat and so right. they kind of went through different squats as being different parts of of a training cycle and you know what they were necessarily uh you know putting in was specific to what that athlete needed 
Right. And, and John, when, when you say quarter squat, if you actually measure it, the knee goes, it looks like maybe a quarter squat, but when the knee goes in front of the toe and they stop at what other people squat, maybe call a quarter or half, they actually might even be below 90 degrees with their shin and yeah. their femur. Does that make no, sense? No, I'm, so, I'm, I'm just using the term quarter squat yes, because right. we know, you know, we can equate that oppose. But I mean, right. uh, uh, I'll tell you this. I mean, uh, people's perception of this shit is crazy. Like I, I just saw, I don't know if you guys saw it, but there was an 18-year-old kid here in Texas, Texas High School Powerlifters Association, oh, yeah. squatted like, I want to say it was like 1,035 or 1,025. or 1,083. Or, yeah, 1,083 in a set of wraps in a single ply. Wow, 18 years old, and it was fast. And the best is, uh, so I'm watching the video, and I'm like, fuck, this is killer. I scroll down, I read the comments. Second comment. Half squat. Yeah, uh, he doesn't look like he hit parallel. And like I was like, oh, one, of first of all, this guy needs to eat a bag of dicks. He's 1, like, I've been a power lifter. Yeah, I've, I've been a power lifter and a, you know, a, a SPF or a IPA uh, judge, and you know, it doesn't look like it's below parallel. We're, you know, I'm used to my squats being buried. I'm like, no, this kid fucking buried 1,025 at 18 years old. Go fuck yourself, you bag of dicks. Yeah. But, I mean, like, we've, we've gotten so obsessed with this idea of, uh, you know, you have to fucking bury, uh, you know, and I remember George uh, saying this old dude I used to train with would said, um, you know, the only person that's getting splinters in the ass is the dude uh, who's sitting on the bench. Because when we talk about it, because I asked him one time, I'm like, hey, what about this squatting all the way down till your butt hits the ground? And he's like, oh, like getting splinters in your ass? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know where that leads you? The fucking bench. That's where you get splinters in your ass. He's like, squat down to where, you know, until I call you up. And the idea of we just need you just below parallel, just below the hip crease so that you can reverse. And um, that's what, you know, we always kind of keep as our standard. Well, yeah, I mean, our, our standards come from Olympic lifting or powerlifting when, when like those people, like, have you, you know, you can go to an elite powerlifting gym, watch those people walk around. They're the most unathletic looking people I've ever done. I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they're actually stiff, <laughs> stiff is the I, word. I know. Well, you're, you're sitting here going, man, and then they run a 40 and you're going, oh boy, that's ugly. You know what I mean? They couldn't play anywhere. They couldn't do anything. You know what you're saying? That's why they're powerlifters. Uh, well, and I, I know. I mean, the, the idea of basically just being stuck in a single plane of motion, you know, up and down, closed chain. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, I mean, there's like, in terms of developing strength, that's, that's uh, I, I guess you could say, that, you know, that's an important deal. But at the end of the day, if it was just uh, football and these sports were just about being strong, then there would be nothing but a bunch of, you know, really strong power lifters and, and, you know, guys out there. And like I've, dude, you guys have heard me for years tell you, dude, I played with guys that couldn't fucking, you know, lift 225, 245, but you come out and fucking hit you like a ton of bricks. And, uh, dude, I watched a guy bench 585 for reps and went out and they basically cut him before the fucking practice was over because we kept knocking him down. They were nervous that he was going to hurt himself. So, I mean. And I guess if you're a power lifter out there listening, you're okay. You're our guy. You're listening. We're just talking within the paradigm of maximizing and empowering performance. If you just love to get under the barbell, get those reps in, and it's like your lifestyle. More good on you, man. But but the idea of, of sport specific. I mean, you know, right. now you're looking at like you know this uh, open loop environment of having to be able to you know play a sport at 100 percent intensity that might encompass just about everything other than a heavy bar on your back as you guys are going down into a bilateral hip pinch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, like it's. Look, when you start lifting heavy weights, we found this in track and field athletes and swimming towards, you know, if you peak like a power lifter does, if you peak like an Olympic lifter does, you actually train the nervous system to get slower. So you started running slower so that, you know, my track coach is going, this isn't working. What are we doing? I'm like, okay. So actually what I did was I, I peaked my athletes um, at, at uh, between 55 and 80%. 
Okay, so I spent four weeks peaking them or six even before the, 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 the conference meet. Instead of going heavyweight, hitting heavy singles at 92, 95%, I, I actually spent time between 55 and 80 and added plyometrics, and they got great results. It took me a decade to ask this question then. What if I went lower? Huh. Right, I'm not very smart, but, but it's taken, it takes me time, but I get it there, right? I went between 25 and 50% load. I got even greater results. No shit. Yep. So I, when I peak, you know, people walk, they'll walk in my weight room. They'll see kid with, with uh, you know, 110 on the bar with some bands. He's at um, 25% load and, and just whipping that bar up and down, pushing in and pulling. So he pulls it down. And here's what people don't understand. If you have 110 on the bar and you rip that bar down and you pull it towards your chest, it's my chapter six of triphasic AFSM and the band's pulling down. When he stops that bar, there can be as much as six to 800 pounds of force instantaneously on his chest. Mm -hmm. He stops it. And then when that tissue's correct, because you've done triphasic already, the muscle and tendon grab that instantly and shoot it up even faster. And that's what you want with sports is that particular movement. I mean, this interaction between the muscle and tendon. So, so if I can explain this, the muscle and tendon are a spring two spring system. If one becomes super strong, if you got two sets of springs on your car, if one's super strong, it just beats the other one up. So what transpires if you if you spend all your time as a power lifter, okay, only training heavy loads with the muscle, what do you tear? You tear your tendon. Right. And then, John, you, you, you've seen this where, where guys go to these 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 um, places and all they do is speed training and plyos. Right. Well, what do they pull in camp? Muscles. Hamstrings, <laughs> because yeah. they haven't got that spring relationship together of these two springs have to be optimal. Now, here's uh, I'll tell you guys this. Maybe you have me back on. I actually, um, we're putting together formulas. And anytime you want to come back on. Please. Okay, okay, you, okay. <laughs> We would gladly open a, a seat up here for you every week. I believe there, um, we, I, I have a coach, we're working together to get this up, a stiffness tissue rating so that if you're running 100 meters on a track, we'll optimize your interaction between the muscle and the tendon for a stiffness quality. If you're a soccer player and you're running on grass, you have to have a different level of stiffness. Well, I mean, uh, what you're effectively saying, and, and for those of you guys listening, is that you need to train in both kind of worlds. It isn't just like a speed plyometric deal. You have to be able to, um, you know, lift heavy weights. But Cal found the same thing I figured out, that uh, singles, heavy singles did not translate to the football field the way that uh, uh, five rep, uh, five RMs did for me. So for me, every, I based everything off of a, a heavy five RM, and that's the reason in our programming we do a lot of rep maxes, because for me the singles weren't as beneficial. When I hit a big single um, and I wasn't as strong on my rep max, I wasn't able to perform as better. And I got to the point where I just got away from singles, and it was all like triples and fives, and even, you know, sevens and tens and other, and I was constantly pushing these rep maxes, because for me, the ability to generate force with repeated efforts was more beneficial, but also being able to do that and then mix in the dynamic speed, the plyometrics that you have to create a, uh, you know, or like a concurrent training template that actually works towards something, you know, where you're cycling through volume and intensity. And so I think what happens is a lot of athletes get stuck in these kind of uh, block periodization phases, like I'm going to do this speed, I'm going to do this. And for me, um, other than basically doing a little bit of high rep kind of, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, Nebraska, uh, you know, power athlete or what uh, the metabolic conditioning circuits early on. Um, for the most part, I, I think there's piece, pieces in that, but I, I think just getting into like one phase of your training and thinking that's going to get you there is not. Yeah, it's a process. That's what I mean. It's so hard for our, our kids nowadays because I have a 24 off-season week process. Now we peak twice in that phase, but you're sitting here going, kids don't want to wait 24 weeks. You know what I mean? They they want to walk in and do plyometrics, and I think we do the first ply the serious speed they like my kids will love my speed phase and they're like coach we love this this is the best lift ever and we'll we should do, do this all the time right <laughs> but i'm like guys you can't do it very fast if you don't do triphasic and le you know what i'm saying you have to have eight weeks of the process to get here to optimize these benefits sure. and, and john for you i mean obviously i would assume you're a, you're you're a quick motor skill learner so the heavy singles you adapted to so fast that that turned your nervous system into straining versus a reactiveness, you adapt at a high level. So that's why those singles didn't work for you as well. You know what I mean? Or they may work for two weeks, but then I would say after about two weeks, you know, you probably needed to switch to the power phase. Well, you I mean, in, in the off season, I hit more rep maxes. And then when I got into the season, uh, I would hit singles like on like uh, Friday was really the only day that I actually felt good enough to actually lift with my upper body. So I would always work up to uh, to something. And my, my whole deal was I'd worked up to 405 or as many reps as I could get. Towards the end of the season, it was just a single. But uh, a lot of times, um, you know, early on the season, it was a set of five or six or seven. And then as I got kind of beat up, but I kept intensity up, but I cut volume back. And I knew that, um, you know, I couldn't handle as much load, but I still needed to be able to hit that piece. And that's where I got a lot of our off-season or in-season training where I, uh, you know, everybody wants to just lighten the weights and do a ton of volume in the uh, in-season training template. Right. And I actually did the opposite. I cut the volume and kept intensity high. And it was just because I needed the nervous system to fire faster and I couldn't do that with a ton of volume so it's kind of a um, I think what people are searching for is a template that they can follow all Globally, year round yeah. forever and we know that uh, it, it doesn't work like that so you have to be able to adjust your programs and then the other thing we run into is a lot of program hopping where somebody goes in and like hey I you know I, I want to follow this program oh shit you guys you happen to jump in in the last week which is our testing phase that you're not fucking ready for or they jump into something where you know they haven't done the prerequisite work that we've been building up to and it's uh, it's something so we struggle this, with. This is one of the questions I had for you, Cal. So appealing to the athletes, they want to do this because they enjoy that. Or sport coaches, have you ever had them come to the weight room and say, "Hey, I want to see this"? So what are your appeals to stick to the process that you have had success with, coaches or athletes? Right. Um, one, you know, I don't have that problem anymore. I mean, I just been here this long. I've been lucky enough to be part of. 35 big 10 titles whatever right i, I just don't <laughs> haven't screwed kids up at this point so they, they trust me right but but yeah you know what i've, I've told my assistants what seem to work with them when they go somewhere they, they pull out they bring the speed face right now like day one and the head coach is in there like oh we love this and then they come back day two and say coach these kids can't handle this we will never receive the benefits i'm gonna have to go back and do this other stuff so that we can get better later even even greater results is that okay the coach is like yeah, I'll do it that way then. So, you know, they, you have to educate them. Like when you walk in the door that first day, you have to have a great workout that might not even be that good. But right. that's what people are going to like as a coach because you still have to. That's the hard part for me. I yeah. won't do it anymore. I, I don't sell myself. I just won't do it. So so but you I, don't like the dog and pony show anymore? No, no, I, I won't do it. Right. It's just it's not me. I'm not going to do it. That's the last thing I, I want to do. And I, I want to get better. I want to try to 
to do all the right things I can to make sure we win. Cause like winning to me is, is, is more important than breathing most days. Let's, let's be mm-hmm. honest. That's why I, that's why I have a library of uh, 90,000 books and articles, you know, you're, you're going on. Okay. Cause fucking losing sucks. I yeah, mean, I'm a bad loser. Yeah, no. I, I just well, can't take well, as uh, Stevie Rosick, who's my adopted brother, has uh, told us, uh, "Show me somebody that's okay with losing, and I'll show you a loser." <laughs> oh, exactly. And and that that was like <laughs> that. Stevo uh, has always said it, and he's like, you know, like uh, you go into train, like if you're okay with losing, you're a fucking loser. Nobody's okay with uh, with losing, so let's fucking get it going. And yeah, I mean, so uh, you know, sometimes you have to show them, hey, you can do this speed workout right now but but you're not going to reap the full benefits and usually people say okay how do i do reap the both you know the full benefits you're like i'm gonna have to go back six weeks and we're gonna have to get you through that process and then we'll really make gains because that's going to set you up to be better at this and i think that explanation sometimes helps but but our society is such that fast food slick ass yeah. method of apps and i need it right now when you're like it, People, it's a process. process yeah well the, and, the the other thing and uh, i was going to ask you a little bit because you know uh, we we talked about this at about summer strong the idea of uh, developing an aerobic base as a as a way to build upon speed that if you don't have the ability to be able to do uh, enough conditioning to be able to generate enough force and have enough high-end max efforts in terms of your sprint work then uh you know it's kind of a wasted deal so can um you know, I want to wrap yeah. a little bit about some, you know, and I know we talked about right. summer strong and I, I fucking wish I wrote it all down, but well, yeah. Um, where, where I got it, John was, I was about 10 years into training and I was tend to everybody. And, you know, let's say for example, I had a kid to get eight singles on his bench before his singles at a certain load dropped off. And, and that was the average for the group. But, but I walked right off the season and we started doing that right after the season, after two weeks, you know, of rest. And I'm like, okay, I did eight singles and that's about their limit at this load before they, they, and it was cluster. So it was, you know, Hey, just do the single until the bar slows down, take two minutes between each one. Well, the next year I implement, I, you know, I had a conversation and Ver, Yuri Verkashansky listened to him on the phone through a translator and I was like, okay, so I absolutely just implemented two weeks of aerobic conditioning circuits. And that singles the next year, everybody went from eight singles to 16 singles hmm. before the bar. And I knew at that point, I realized the aerobic capacity is very important because you can train more a lactic short explosive work. If you have great aerobic capacity, you recover better. The, the system like I have... Um, I have 50 athletes, hockey players that would, would relatively could be termed like CrossFit because they get into lactate a lot. Right. With a resting heart rate of 32 to 36. Well, you know, we just call that uh we don't really call it CrossFit. We just call it, um, however, uh, athletes have trained since the Russians. I mean, if you go and you read, uh, any right. of the Russian, you know, the Russian conditioning circuits, I mean, Boyd Epley, the metabolic conditioning stuff. I mean, CrossFit just put hot chicks in knee high socks and added girl Here workouts. We go. But right? I mean, yeah. but I'll, I'll tell you, if you talk to them, they uh, they like to believe that if you do more than one lift at a time at a higher heart rate, you're doing CrossFit, which to me is kind of insane. But, you know, uh, we well, do let's take aerobic. You know, let, let me give you this story. And, and a lot of teams uh, have have started using it with their big guys. So, you know, the physiologists here at Minnesota, oh, you got to go run like five miles to get an aerobic base. You can't build a base with a circuit. I'm like, wait a minute. The heart rate's going 150 for 35 minutes. Like. I don't understand, 
you, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what you don't understand that that's still a cardio workout, anything between your lactate threshold and, and, and you're like, let's say around 115, 110, I'm of heart rate. You're just like, Hey, you're going to get an aerobic effect. So like my shot putters, the conundrum was how do I best build their aerobic capacity without affecting their strength? So what I did was I just basically used 50% load on the bench in front squat. They'll do a single on bench, go over the next rack, do a single on front squat. They go back and forth for eight to 10 minutes. Their heart rate's at 150 the whole time. And I actually can get lactate threshold on my athletes. So I'll, I'll actually give them a number. You can't go above 168 on this. If are you, you do, uh, are, are you doing blood work on that to like test lactate load? Like uh, no, uh, to find lactate or yeah. So, I mean like, uh, to keep them out of that, like, uh, you know, well, once lactate. I identify the lactate threshold, then we keep that heart rate under that. Well, how do you identify the threshold? I have a, a few testing parameters with my, uh, Omega wave. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we, so, we so, so more voodoo. So more voodoo. Yeah. 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 So I actually matched it up with, with blood cause we did blood on guys and we were within three beats. So I'm like, Hey, wow. three beats. I'm, I'm fine. I'll just take three off of it. And there's your lactate stay below the 165. But, and then you do the next set, you do, uh, maybe a lap pull down, uh, 50 to 60% load with a, um, with, with an RDL. So you get your posterior chain. And I do four cycles of that, and I'll actually send you guys a sample of it, where I just do, let's say, 50% load for 10 minutes, just back and forth of singles. And I did 36 minutes, let's say, or 32 minutes of aerobic conditioning with that. That makes a shot putter happy. That yeah. <laughs> I know there's a number of NFL teams that have used it with their linemen, and they love that versus these tempo runs. or right. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the interesting thing too, and, um, I, you know, coming from the NFL stuff, um, guys really hated to run, which was kind of interesting for me. Like, I don't know anybody that truly loves to run, but I mean, uh, for me, what I found was that a lot of guys, because they were so tight or they were so, uh, specifically oriented to their job that they were just really awkward runners. And, uh, for me, like I always loved to sprint and I loved to run, but, uh, I had a pretty good stride, so it was easier for me. Like I could get out hard and just kind of coast into it. And sure. so, so I, I know there were people that like, you know, Hey, I'd rather do this stuff, but I mean, is there ever a time to kind of do some mixed modal type stuff? Like, Hey, you know what, we're going to do that. And maybe uh salt bike or kind of, you know, maybe is, hit some different types of swimming stuff. is swimming an option for your guys. Uh, I don't have much access, but I, I mean, anything, if I'm doing the aerobic block, anything in that 110 to lactate as long as you threshold keep, or as long as you keep it up. Yeah. yeah and I said, honestly, I, at the beginning of the year, I like, the more different movements it flushes out tissue it, it, it works the little muscles i mean it's it's vitally important to build that base or then my default if if we're training and, and a guy's really messed up he came back on a plane trip i always default to aerobic there is that's my download so what uh, uh if so once you develop the aerobic base and you start stacking the training on um, and it gets more specific, do you kind of do a maintenance of the aerobic work? Like, hey, you know, we're in this phase and now we're translating off. So like three days a week, I just want you to give me 20 minutes at a 70% heart rate just to kind of keep it current. Um, when I do triphasic, I do not. And what I found, the, the crazy thing, what I found, John, is uh, it'll get more explained in my second book. Let's say I get out of the aerobic, go in the eccentric phase. So they started the aerobic phase at uh, resting heart rate of 60. By the end of the aerobic, they're down to about 52, 50. Then during the eccentric phase, um, we actually have them hold their breath on the way down. 
to cause an increased spike in blood pressure, what transpires is they start dropping their heartbeat down and the resting heart rate goes to about 44 in that range or 45. And then I usually get another during the isometric phase of triphasic, I'll get another decrease in heartbeat, resting heartbeat of 10 seconds. And, and we're training hard, but no cardio. The reason for that is with the high blood pressure of the isometric phase, I truly believe it's a vascular system adaptation. And then your heart, like my guys have super low resting heart rates and roughly super low blood pressure because it's a, it's a adaptation of the vascular system. I'm doing no cardio work, but the resting heart rates have now dropped to 32 and their blood pressure is low. And that's a good thing as long as you're not passing out, right? We know that. So and, I mean, their capillary density and all the other yes, good stuff just goes through the roof. Because of the, now look, I'll do super maximal isometric phases now. And you know, their blood pressure has got to be in the three, four, maybe five hundreds. The pulse wave velocity, which is the, the healthiness of the artery coming out of the heart goes extremely high well the idea that um the way the arteries and the veins work is that if you can kind of uh they're they're super elastic and if you don't drive blood and actually force them in and out then they lose right. that elasticity of the uh, artery wall and you run into problems and it starts to harden what people don't realize is that you need to drive blood through and actually stretch and kind of compress and yes. be able to keep them extremely pliable and uh, the idea that, you know, when you hold your breath and like we run into people all the time, what do you mean? You want me to hold my breath on a squat? I'm going to uh, have a brain aneurysm. I'm like, no, we want your blood pressure to go up unless you have some form of condition like AFib. And yeah, it actually happened to me. I had a guy go into AFib who had a heart condition and didn't tell me. And we were doing a bunch of like high rep kettlebell swings, which for some reason, squeezing a, a large uh, like a handle like the, the kettlebell drives sure. up the blood pressure and the heart rate faster than anything else I've seen. And the guy almost, you know fucking passed out well there, it's stress it's adaptation and if that blood vessel is more pliable then when the heart beats and expands more there's that that vibration that just happens all the way through it so the blood's carried even farther you know and that's the thing about triphasic so it does a number of things with the vascular system with the metabolic system but what we found was we compared our practices to an nhl team that hadn't done triphasic and we, we compared catapult loads. So our practice was about 30% harder than theirs. But our resting heart rates and the average heartbeat was between 20 and 16 beats lower throughout the whole practice. Because with triphasic and the metabolic system and the heart, it actually builds more resilience towards stress. So what you have is your, my athletes go up really fast, but come down super low when they're resting in between. So like one of my elite olympic caliber wrestlers i mean he's at 185 when he's doing french contrast and 30 seconds later he's at 68 resting heartbeat so his ability to handle more stress and inoculate and then manage what you are is you're actually managing adrenaline super effectively does that make sense mm -hmm. and with that you can you can reproduce efforts the entire game so the goal what they're finding now with, with team sports the team that moves the fastest at the end of the game is the one that wins if they're if they're comparable and as you know if, if you're in shape and that re that's the repeated sprint ability sure. i call it repeated sprint ability or actually I, I like the term repeated max effort ability yeah if you have that quality because you have a huge aerobic base and then you've trained your your athletes in a lactate system under 10 seconds you will have a huge capacity 
to repeat at the end of the fourth quarter in the last period so that your team's the fastest, which will better give you a chance to win. You know, uh, this is just kind of an inside joke, but um, I always joke that uh, every team I played for always their mantra was the fourth quarter is ours. You know, we, we got to be ready for the fourth quarter. We got to do this. And uh, I just always laugh that uh, that's everybody's mantra, but yet everybody has a different way to attack it. And I always wanted yes. somebody to be like, hey, the third quarter is ours. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to kick ass in the third quarter and just coast into the fourth. But like uh, like, like that whole thing, and, and these guys have heard me say, man, there were so many things about like being able, like you said, being able to have that ability. And you think about like, yeah, it's aerobic base, it's training, it's all the other things. But at the end of the, uh, the, end of the game, the ability just to mentally be like, you know what, everybody's fucking tired, everybody's banged up. Uh, as soon as that buzzer goes and it's the fourth quarter, I'm going to sprint as fast as I can across the field to, to get to the line. I'm going to show these people that I'm not tired. And I think just right. like having a little bit of that armor, but where you develop that shit is in the off season. And what right. people don't realize is that, uh, you know, when they're watching the NFL or they're watching the Olympics, um, you know, they're seeing these athletes perform at such a high level on that given moment. What they don't see is all the, the prep and work and like the amount of fucking time when nobody's around watching, the, you know, nobody's making sure you're doing what you're doing and you have to yeah. because you don't want to get out in that situation and get exposed and know that, hey, fuck, six months ago when I didn't do what I said I was going to do, that's the reason. Right. I mean, that, no one's there watching you run gassers or, or 2040s and cheering you on because you, you'd have a lot of freaking energy at that no, point right no it's <laughs> and, awful and it's fucking hot and you're out there and it's like they just cut the grass and so you're fucking breathing in all this shit and i mean <laughs> that's why like uh regardless of where we are man if like freshly cut grass like makes me fucking sick to my stomach because i can think <laughs> of like walking out like hearing the cicadas going like morning the freshly cut grass and people are like oh i love it i'm like dude it makes me want to throw up dude so <laughs> yeah because you've you've, you've uh, had to turn yourself inside out during yeah. that time frame right yeah it's, it's uh, part of it so, yeah. cal, cal one of the battles we fight is with conditioning right and uh an argument that i've i use is is boxing right a boxing round lasts three minutes and it's the winner of the round is determined by how many punches landed right the accuracy within that versus how many punches are thrown so our objective would be to condition an athlete to increase the number of opportunities he gets himself right repeatability uh, like you were saying, not just slow, monotonous conditioning, right, for three minutes or however long. So what kind of conditioning can you advise or conditioning tests can you, that you apply to your athletes that are representative of the demands of hockey or other sports that you're working with? You know, honestly, I, I actually stay out of the lactate zone a lot because what I found is, especially in the offseason now, if there's sports lactate, like hockey, um, they get it in season. So the two, and the reason I stay out of lactate a lot is because honestly, it pushes cortisol through the roof, which is a, which cortisols can just tears tissue down. So you do all this training, but you spend, that's why you'll see most of my sets are during the summer. We don't do anything above 10 seconds ever because it's a lactic system. When you get into 20, 30 second sets, you start to push cortisol through the roof. Okay. Now I wrote about, I didn't write about that in triphasic, the original, but I didn't want to get into the energy system aspect. So, I mean, my athletes will do extremely hard. Like people, people called me and they said, Cal, okay. I had a group of strength coaches together and they called me and said, Cal, so what'd you do today? Well, my best athlete did 10 sec or 70, 10 second bouts of training, whether it was under a squat is max effort agility drill. And they're like, okay, that's great. Yeah, that's okay. And we, they understood the cortisol of managing it. And then they're like, well, what'd you do for conditioning? I'm like, um, I did 70 bouts <laughs> of 10 seconds. I'm like, 
that, that's like that that whole thing and they spent the whole hour and 10 minutes with their heart rate above 110 minimum i'm like that was a huge conditioning and this kid is a beast i mean this kid is a absolute animal for me one of the better i mean the thousands of athletes i've trained he pushed himself so hard one day on a test that he his heartbeat we had him at like 248 he lost vision just could see big objects was vomiting and, and I didn't want to even like this was a test the coach wanted and this kid just kept pushing it, it was like there's something broken him that he could keep going you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. yeah he was a warrior you know there's, there's warriors you've come across and this was one of them you, you call him up we usually call that stupidity yeah right yeah. Well, you're going, but you just gotta this kid was all in right you call him up hey I'm gonna hunt Moby Dick in a rowboat and he's like I'll, I'll stop by the store and get the tartar sauce. Let's go get you know what I mean? That's the type of mentality he had. He wasn't going to question anything. He was going to just do it as hard as he could. So, uh, and he's still playing pro hockey, but uh, you're, you're just like, so I guess the big thing is I push the alactic system to be very effective and be able to repeat it. I have a sound aerobic base. And then because I've found that you just can't hold lactate, like doing sets of between tw- uh, 10 and 30 seconds all year round. You can go about six weeks to eight, and then I find out the the performance drops. But here's the catch. If you have a sound aerobic base, and you just, I, I think the cross conditioning when you're trying to build aerobic, so add in your swimming, add in all this other variables, the full body movements to me are optimal. If you get your aerobic base built up, you actually hold lactate off. You can do more work before you shift mm-hmm. into lactate. Sure. And then if you're stronger, it even holds it off even more. So get strong, have a good aerobic fitness capacity, and and then work on specificity for your sport because you do have to throw punches. Just You just can't get away from that. Um, but maybe do the conditioning like, hey, hard 10 seconds, back out, gather your breathing, go back in. But but you have to go, it, it, you know, if you really look at the undulated model that I write about in Triphasic, I really kind of got it from the horse community. They're like, okay, one day we're going to run the race. And then the next day we're going to run shorter distance, but run the race harder. And then the next day we're going to run a little longer distances and run it a little slower. So you run at the race, a little bit more intense and a little bit less. And that's how they, you know, in horses, they don't have all this like other stuff. You know, you give a horse a vitamin and it runs faster. There's no placebo effect. It doesn't know it's getting a vitamin. So that actual vitamin worked. And I got my, a lot of my nutrition stuff from horse people because it, the, there was a guy that would actually test it because the horse doesn't know it's getting a shot of, of Winstrol, let's say, or something like that, right? <laughs> well, it's, I don't know if we have to argue that a shot of Winstrol yeah, yeah. is going to make you I'm, – no. I'm sure we're in agreement so on that So there's no one. placebo yeah, yeah. there? Or? Yeah. yeah. But if it's, you know, certain vitamins or things for performance, yeah, the horse doesn't know. Can, uh, I, I was going to hit you on, um, you know, I mean uh, – you remember back in the day when uh, lactate or uh, lactic acid was this uh, terrible byproduct and you had to do everything you could to avoid it. And then right. we've kind of learned a lot that, you know, lactate is more of a kind of a fuel in a lot of ways. It's a, not necessarily a byproduct and the burning in your legs isn't necessarily lactate. But can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, lactic acid, lactate and kind of, uh, you know, the study? And because and, it sounds like, I mean, based off the omega waves in the training, uh, you're pretty adept at it. Well, you know what? I, uh, I just find that, that you actually need it, right? It's very important. It's in a huge adaptation cycle. So I'll actually maybe I'll do it for two weeks in my GPP phase. So what I do is I do aerobic based training for two weeks and then I'll do a lactate training. And then I really never address it until it's time to get close to their sport. Okay. And with like one of the methods I, I came across, it was the lactate entrapment method I talked about on my YouTube channel. So I, we actually utilize it 
in uh, let's say we run a let's say a gas 300 or we'll, we'll do this run where it takes about 40 seconds to get up a stadium steps and instead of flushing the lactate out we actually have my athletes drop into a deep squat to hold the blood in and then there's for about 30 to 40 seconds so then the lactate stays in the muscle which causes greater adaptation. So you can actually get greater adaptation by doing less lactate sets that way. Because a lot of coaches say, oh, we're going to run 50 seconds and then we're going to walk to flush the lactate out. Well, that works too. But if you're in the adaptation phase of training, you actually run that 50 seconds, drop into a deep squat to hold the lactate in to cause greater adaptations. I actually put it on my YouTube channel. It's called Lactate Entrapment Method. If you guys want to um, send maybe post a link to it but but it, and well, it's what not about gonna... growth hormone like uh you know we we know that uh growth hormones yep. uh, what is it uh lactic or uh growth hormone yeah. is, re is released in response to lactic acid threshold type especially movements. a couple of days later so i truly believe that if you're let's say you're in the track uh, yeah field. that's what i was yeah. gonna ask on the window i mean so so right. you you're in like a big lactic acid threshold type uh training deal uh growth hormones response is that an immediate is it an extended like it's the next it's actually i think it's the next day that it comes in and and you can utilize that then um now here's the problem though so when you do a lactate there's also a neurological component and there's all these other variables some people might run their short sprints after the lactate some might need to do the aerobic day based upon if they need to recover you know what i'm saying and, and it's like I think this is where coaches just have and people have to experiment with themselves, log down, see what happens. But John, the reason we train like that, that, that Friday single that you did, the reason we train with heavy weights and not just constantly do marathon run is because we get a hormonal response. Oh, like wow. this should be your number one concern. Like these short sprints, the, the short 10 second bouts of, of exercise that I do is all you get a testosterone. Sure. Like when, and especially John, when I went super maximal loading, I had self-reported testosterone gains right away from the males. Dude, uh, there, there's a, a pretty interesting observation I made a number of years ago. There was a, a definite structural and difference of muscle fiber looking, just, just from just a basic observational, of people that lifted weights over 85% consistently and people that lifted under 85 and, you know, no if you question. think about, I mean, it, it just structurally like uh, the trap, like the development, the thickness, everything about the muscle. And, um, uh, you know, and I remember just like kind of the old power lifter guy that we used to train with and whatever. He's like, man, if, uh, if the secret to getting stronger and getting, you know, bigger muscle and all that came from light weights, why the fuck would we ever load it up heavy? Right. He, he's like, hey. it, it, it takes effort. It takes time. There's injury. There's technique. It's, it's easier to lift fucking light weights. But, uh, and he, and then I, I, you know, started talking to people about their training. Hey, you know, I lift, uh, you know, 55, 60. I never do over this. The look, and even though they, um, and, uh, I remember it was, uh, David Boston. You remember David Boston? Yep. Uh, yep. The receiver. He, he trained with Paulkin and, uh, he had done all, you know, Paulkin stuff and he was the poster boy for him. So, he shows up when I'm down in Tampa, and we had about 20 NFL guys training down in Tampa at the time, and we were fucking hitting it hard. And uh, I remember Boston came in to train with us and didn't survive 20 minutes in that workout. And we started right. talking about his training, and I mean, the dude was super jacked, but yet his muscles lacked that kind of thickness and density and hadn't been mm -hmm. used to handling that shit because it was all basically, you know, Paulkin was training him, uh, you know, all this kind of you know high rep bodybuilder hypertrophy type stuff, so he looked good on his fucking book. And the dude had no ability to handle load. He couldn't handle the force. He just couldn't handle the volume whatsoever. And it just became this idea that, man, that the, the, 
there's a dramatic difference in terms of structural and like uh, I was really digging when we were talking about the eccentrics with the remodeling, mm-hmm. but really that restructuring and you can just yeah, I can just tell that somebody lifts heavy weights uh, in the NFL. I mean, I could see the guys that trained heavy and the guys that didn't just based off of like a trap and a, a you know upper back development. What right. you know what they look like within the thickness of their uh, um, you know like a hip flexor and a glute and a hamstring. You know, a guy with a flat hamstring and a big quad opposed from a dude that quad was a little bit smaller, but all of a sudden the hamstring looks like a fucking racehorse. Right, and the ass yeah. looks like a bowling ball. Yeah, and then, you know, you know I mean? yeah, and then uh, you know, like uh, you know, higher, uh, you know, kind of smaller, higher calves. You know, when the calves were attached to real low and were real thick, those guys were always slower and couldn't change direction as fast. You know what? Like, so, so during my download phase, one of the things I do to get a hormonal release because we're we're doing light loads, maybe even aerobic circuit, I will get them into a single leg split squat position to do a pull against the rack for five to seven seconds about four sets of that because it's max effort it's god awful but it causes a hormone release and then that adrenaline can also help you recover at the cellular level when you do your aerobic flush post-workout or during that during that uh, post-rack pull phase but we wouldn't adapt to any of these things if we didn't get hormones if we didn't have hormones and how do you get more hormones you lift heavier weights it's that simple and you eat protein Look at a marathon runner. They get a series of, of bad hormones eventually, or, you know, the, the cortisols and everything that goes wrong with them. It's not a good hormone balance. It's a poor hormone balance. Why is it then that, that uh, cortisol, and th- this is just purely observational from, you know, having worked with a lot of the CrossFit girls. Uh, why is it that the CrossFit girls are able to handle high levels of cortisol and stress so much better than the men are because if you like just purely observational I mean I played in the NFL so uh, seeing jack dudes and, and you know especially a uh, five foot six 165 pound jack dude isn't impressive to me when you see a dude who's 6'5 275 mm-hmm. pounds it's four percent that's fucking and, impressive and, runs a four, four, and four, it runs a four four and really hasn't lifted weights that much in his life that's impressive but the one thing that I've never seen is the amount of musculature and strength and just the general structure of a lot of girls that have been doing the CrossFit stuff so all I think is that, you know, high motor lactic acid threshold type training, you know, on fucking tap 24 hours a day. Uh, the only thing I could think is that they're cooking their adrenals. So they're getting a hormone uh, testosterone release out of their adrenals and they're doing, um, you know, lactic acid threshold. So they're getting a ton of growth hormone response. But why is it that the, that the female athletes can handle so much fucking more load than the man can? Because, I mean, dude, that level of cortisol and stress would basically fucking turn me into a eunuch. No, I know. And I, I think they're they're better set up for endurance survival, if that makes sense. Uh, my girls seem to adapt faster aerobically. Um, you know, you get your mitochondria from your mother. Um, sperm, that doesn't travel with the sperm. So uh, I have to believe my females seem to adapt better during the aerobic phase. And I think because their mitochondria uh, maybe and, and you know I might be way off here, but they just with with the adaption of the aerobic phase to be better in females, I think that they can process the bad hormones better. Just my just my guess. Now the men, as you know, some of those the the, the freaks like you know my one shot putter high vertical of 44 inches, 265 pounds, just a freak. You could do anything with him, and he just got better. Um, when he went, I mean there was a. I mean, when, you know, the adrenaline released, like it was survival and he, he aggressively attacked the bar, right? That switch that he had, I'm sure the byproduct was cortisol when he came down and it stayed with him longer. 
Um, I just don't think, I think the women are set up for that survival of long-term for the species, let's say, where the men might, you know, maybe it's the, I got to go fight today well, and, and I got to make it past this 10 minutes or well, something. I, 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 I kind of always equate it back to like uh, engines. So you build like a big, like, you know, 600 cubic inch, big race motor, you put fucking turbos on it. And the thing is meant to do, you know, set a world record in a short it's amount hot. of time. It's going to go hot and you're going to, it's probably going to burn itself down. You're probably going to have to rebuild it. And the amount of prep time you have to get that to back to those is going to yeah. do it. Whereas, you know, you could take a, you know, fairly, you know, you could bolt some high end performance stuff on a, on a, on a, a more kind of, uh, you know, off the shelf type motor and get performance out of it. But you're going to get more longevity yes. and, and just some of the observation like the female gymnasts for example um the majority of their movements are ground-based whereas the men were more upper body based uh if you think about the girls have uh you know vault they have floor they have a balance beam i mean really their only upper body was what the uh uneven bars yeah the uneven bars yeah. but the men were you know rings palma horse uh parallel bars high bar uh, high bar and then uh their one was what vault and, and floor so mm -hmm. it was like more, you know, more ground-based type stuff. Uh, just I remember from college, the girls didn't have nearly the amount of injuries that the male gymnasts had. And uh, I just always thought that maybe uh, it was just the, the fact that the dudes were so much stronger that yeah. they were in such a better position to hurt themselves. They do run hotter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, again, the girls adopt aerobically, but the men, to me, get, get stronger faster in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now there's there's anomalies in there. I do have a number of Olympic athletes, females, so they may be the anomalies too. But it's just like the men do run hotter. And, and you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure men, after that workout, let it go, you know, um, as well either, because that cortisol can also – if you're an if you're an alpha male and you're you're hungry and you're ready to go all the time, you're ticking. Your your sympathetic yeah. system's always running a little bit more. Where I think that female does her workout calms down. To me, when I watch the females after workout, they calm down pretty quick. Even though it was awful, they can calm down quicker. So I think maybe they manage that emotional part of it. Even though they're more emotional, okay, they're more <laughs> emotional, right, um, than the males. But the uh, and it's all situational their perception of stress obviously and how they feel they should be uh um you know I, the funny thing is is I, I tell you know i got this from from a friend of mine my my wife wants to go to a movie where one person dies the whole time and i want to go to a movie where a lot of people die really fast the whole yeah. time you know what i mean i mean that's the kind of difference between us to, to most in most cases sure sure is uh, anything else? Tech, yeah, what do you yeah. Got? Uh -huh. We were talking pre-show, and I had the opportunity to hear you speak at SummerStrong 9 and 10, but 9 in particular, and you, you, almost it felt like your whole presentation was about when squatting, you want your big toe down on the ground, almost grabbing, and the function of the foot and the ankle. So that's something uh, yeah. I really want to get into because one of the battles we fight is having athletes, in order to get their weight back on their heels, they've been told lift their toes up. We don't know where that came from. Well, I, I think, um, and I'm, I'm not going to cut them off, but like what's amazing is uh, putting all the weight on your heels is such a like non-advantageous position. You want that weight over your midfoot because that's a, yeah. your most efficient position. Unless so we, you're water skiing. But like, where does that like lift the big toe, sit back on the heels come from? I just I, I don't, it, it's I, don't feel, know. It, I think it, we can uh, battle it by finding out what it. Who's what to it, blame? Who the fuck put that in? Let's blame them. Let's find somebody. <laughs> oh, no, 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 we, no enemy here, but we have the hero. So Cal, if you don't mind going into kind of explaining your observation, right. and uh, even maybe uh, maybe a 
one, two, three minute on the presentation to give us some uh, context. Right. Well, I believe it's, it's correlated with the, I, I believe it's the Burbinsky reflex, you know, when they grab a baby and they, 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 they rub its foot and the, the, the toe curls. Well, that toe curling also um, signals the glute to fire. So this was my observation is that if, if even on the, every movement I experimented with, and we're, let's say, you know, around a hundred athletes tested this for me, they lifted up their toes and didn't work on their glutes and they did the bench press. I measured the bar speed. They moved it as fast as they can, multiple reps. Then we went and then squeezed the toe, fire the glutes so that when the bench came ready to reverse, your glutes fired, the bar moved faster and all hundred athletes 100 percent of the time i'm not a statistician but i know that that's a good correlation uh, yeah okay. <laughs> i mean we can all agree to this and and i'm just sitting here going so so when you squeeze that toe and people at home could try it just do an rdl with your toes up and even try brace your core do an rdl and then do the rdl with once you get to the bottom squeeze your toe so that you fire the glutes and the bar comes up faster, it's lighter, it's a more efficient movement. So with that, I think it also, when you pull that toe in, it actually helps the arch maintain, which I call the ankle rocker. So then it, it keeps that foot function at a very high level. And, you know, if you don't have that foot function, look, knee pain comes from two places, in my opinion. The hip, which drives the knee, or the foot that's touching the ground. If we ran on air, we'd have a lot less foot pain or a knee pain. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So, and then if you can, and, and we have that. So I actually started coaching it years ago because when, when my athletes were doing plyometrics, it, they just seemed to have more snap when I, when I had a, you're, when you run, you push through your big toe. So I'm thinking, okay, in the gym, that's what I want to do when I do plyometrics. And then when everybody started pushing their butt backs and squatting on their heels, I'm like, that doesn't seem right. And I, you know what? I'm kind of stubborn, so I just ran with it. You know, I'm not to be the antagonist, but ultimately, I only do what looks right and what makes sense. And if you hear me talk enough, there's a lot of things. And look, there's been times in my life I go, oh, fuck, man, everything I know is wrong, right? I'm just going to be like, all right, I just, my wife was right. Everything I might know <laughs> might be wrong. You know, we've all been Yeah, there. it sounds like you're married. Yeah, but you're like, I'm just sitting here going, man this this works and i just i just didn't believe the norms that i heard I, i'm not just gonna do something because somebody else said it i'm gonna play with it. i'm gonna try it i'm gonna see if it works so like and and i don't want to get into this because this is about an eight hour deal but bracing the core every time i had my athletes do that the bar moved slower so i didn't ever did it it's just one thing i, I don't believe in run your 40 brace your core see what happens throw a baseball brace the core see how much slower it gets if you brace your core and everything to me, you're shutting down, you're ingraining the wrong patterns because you're overcoaching. And that's one thing I believe in is that if you overcoach, if an athlete thinks, oh, I got to do this, this, and this, and this when I squat versus I just want you to move the freaking bar fast, please. And that's, you know, obviously you got to get them to a point where they can do that, but do not overcoach them. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen the bar slow down 20%. We did it once where a kid did singles in this rack and he went to the next rack, did singles for 10 and we checked the whole team. That was the workout for that day. They actually did 20 singles in the rack where we gave him five coaching points. The bar was 20% lower than the rack that we gave him uh, one coaching point. And we gave this, and that was, Hey, move the bar fast. And then over here, we gave him five, including move the bar fast, but it was the third one. 
they lost it all. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, we, you know, you, if you give somebody too much information, they basically do nothing with it. So the idea of, um, you know, I mean, it's like the, I can't remember the analogy, but basically like how the performance killer is just too much information. I mean, it's uh, analysis the, it's or paralysis, paralysis through analysis. Yeah. yeah paralysis right. through analysis. Exactly. Especially, you know, you know, athletes are always trying to improve. So the idea is if you give me five things to work on, I'm going to work on all five of them concurrently because I want to be better opposed from like, I just want you to move from point A to point B as fast as you can. Let's fucking yeah. go. And, um, you know, do and, it violently. And, yeah. Well, that's you another know? thing. I mean, most people, uh, you know, uh, like the one thing that struck me kind of interesting was when um, I've been training a different, you know, professional athlete, trained at athletes, uh, performance and the NFL stuff. And I went to a, a, just a normal gym. And uh, the one thing which was so true was I was amazed at how slow everybody moved with the bar. And I remember right. I was like, man, you guys lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. <laughs> right. The one thing that uh, that we never I did. was slow and boring. Oh, well, slow and careful, but oh, uh, sloppy. But, yeah, sloppy. Well, sloppy, <laughs> moist. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of like attacking the bar and basically like, I mean, that, I mean, that, that was the, uh, you know, uh, Zangus was a, a buddy of uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield who's since passed away. But the idea of compensatory acceleration, the idea of being violent and attacking the bar through, you know, uh, from point A to point B and then back again uh, was something that allowed me to do my job very, very well. And what was amazing was how slow and careful people lifted. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. You have to attack these bars and be dynamic because why would you think that slow and careful would translate to fucking fast and violent? It just doesn't. Well, John, uh, yeah, a quick story on one of my athletes. I took this female. I have a lot of national team girls and people. Um, she was in my training program for four years. She'd done, she was 132. She, she'd taken safety bar, single leg squat, and had done 335 with it, okay, wow. as a female. Now, she she leaves our program, and she'd been tested through the national team in a, like 11 tests it was. I'm not going to say which national team or what. I'm, I have many different countries because i got types of athletes, many types of athletes. But she then asked if she could do their program, and it was more of a functional-based training. I'm not ripping on functional-based because it has its place. But so so she basically replaced my safety bar single leg squat, squat at 335 with a 16-pound kettlebell swing, okay? So with that, that, doesn't sound very, that doesn't sound very functional to me. No, right? And, and I'm sitting here going, okay, so actually I got machines that can track her response. So you work out, you have a stress response. But then what happened was after she was done working out, there was no parasympathetic response. She never went into recovery mode. For three months, she was never trained enough. Hmm. Wow. So she goes back to the national team and tests again after three months of doing their program. With She did it with me, and I made sure somebody helped her, did it right. And guess what? All 11 tests got worse. And they were like, well, what'd you do? She's like, I did your program. And like, how was that possible? Well, she'd been to such a high level that she could manage so much stress there, there wasn't enough stress based in the program to cause a training effect. And this is what people miss out on. You know, you may not have a training response and that's the big thing. Are you getting a response? So um, she got back on my program. We worked on three months and boom, she was back actually even a little bit better on some of the numbers. So you're like, okay, this, that's a basic story of what people miss when they're moving slow, John. There's not enough stress being placed on the movement. Now, it might be hard that you're standing on a pad and you're trying to balance with one leg and, and do all that, but there's no tissue adaptations there. There's no hormonal response. Well, where, you know, I, I got real sideways with uh, Versagen when we were training at Athletes Performance because he was trying to tell me that uh, – 
a Vertmax. Um, now, what was the deal where you hook up to the the bands to the waist and do the vertical jump? Was that the Vertmax? Oh, the Vert. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, Vertimax. Vertimax. Vertimax, yeah, yeah, Vertimax was a better movement than uh, than doing heavy power cleans, power snatches, and the dynamic Olympic movements. And he and then he was like, "Oh, it's uh, it's much better." This and I'm like, "Dude, uh, the me basically pulling a bar, pulling myself under, and actually the weight crashing on me and me absorbing that load and standing up. You're trying to tell me that this machine, which is basically using bands, is better than actually that bar coming down and me absorbing and dri- being able to drive against that load." And he was like, "Yes." And I'm like, "You're fucking out of your mind, dude. There's no fucking way." And they're both effective, and there's a time for each of them, but you can't just do the one with the bands, the the Vertimax by itself it, it it doesn't work if you need to get strong you need to do the olympic lifts or move the heavy weight yeah. there's no question there's no adaptations there are no adaptations to that neurologically there is but yeah. not hormonally no that's, that's and, what... and and for also for structure because you think about when we talked to when you were talking about bracing the core uh there's very few times in the world where you're actually braced waiting on it and just asking any boxer any boxer that tenses up too much so we so we uh aunt low who's one of the guys we know down in australia ta- uh brought the fa- the phrase up to me of task specific tension that you know you create tension as you need it with and it's kind of an on the fly type of deal that as you know the the boxer is fighting as he goes to take that punch he develops t- enough tension where it doesn't knock him out but not so much that he becomes a you know stiff board to get knocked out uh, same thing in the NFL man the guys that I saw that got hurt so often was when they had they didn't see the blow coming or it kind of hit him in a, in a weird way and they were so tense that they weren't able to basically fall or move or just absorb the blow in such a way so yeah there's no question when I mean that you can take the hit and if your body can relax react and then absorb it that's a much better scenario than if you are too tense and something breaks that's basically yeah. the scenarios that happen yeah no question yeah it's so, uh and it's all trainable but you know you, you push too much heavy weight all the time and then you balance become, yeah it's a balance it's, it's a process it's, it's balance i mean that's a concurrent model like yeah do you yeah. need to lift heavy weights yes yeah. so people ask me well what do i need and i'm like you need everything you need to be able to move fast you need to be able to move heavy load under uh you know with with force you need to be able to throw and carry and rotate and be able to sprint and run you need to be able to do aerobics i mean have some aerobic base you have to have you know aerobic like lytic capacity you have to be able to train all this stuff the problem is you can't train everything at once so while you continue to develop things you have to periodize and almost cycle through your programming like you're saying uh you know at different points and the problem is there's no one size fits all for people and you know as you know that like you know uh, but you're working with people in real time and seeing them and yeah. testing them lots and putting of data them in. yeah to, you have so much data i mean fuck like that's become the uh the crux of a lot of this stuff is like if you were trying to write a generalist approach and try to hit the bell curve the people at the top and the bottom are forever going to get uh, lost but unfortunately the outliers are the ones that fucking perform at the highest levels yeah, uh, there's no question. And I mean, is that a process? Like, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, just experiment with my son and my kids. You can see how how training is is uh, is a process. You know, with with the young age group. I mean, I'm just experimenting with my son. I mean, I got all. He's getting tested the other day with a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment, and he's twelve, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, bottom line is you know and some days i just said well it says i probably shouldn't train you but we're gonna go anyway let's go you know let's go do something you know like the 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 one i the story i tell how how resilient kids are i mean he he went to his mom's hockey camp 
and then he then he jumped on with the older kids played hockey again went to the neighbor's house swam for like six hours we called him home for he didn't eat lunch we called him home for dinner i test him on my omega wave and it said he was basically shot if he's an olympic athlete we're gonna take a week off right well he and he fell asleep so he didn't eat dinner next morning jumps up i retest him he's ready to go 100 <laughs> <laughs> like what the i mean everything i know about the science mutant. is is completely well flawed, he's, but he's 12 years you, old right yeah. you're just like this young kid but kids are more so resilient I think it's survival. Their aerobic base is really high and they can, you know, if, if you watch a busload of adults go by on my campus, you're like, man, it looks like they're going to a funeral. They're stressed. They got mortgages. you see a busload of uh, third graders. They're jumping around. Yeah, they're having party. fun. They got no stress. Right. Yeah. So it's all relative on how much you can handle completely, totally. You know, if I didn't have bills or, or, or to coach uh, endless hours and then, and then, you know, be, you know, have to be a dad. Like I could train three times a day. I believe I could. Yeah. I've, that's not going to work. I know. Just, <laughs> you imagine that you're like, Oh, what are you doing? I'm just going to become a professional. I mean, that's the best time of my life, man. Oh, yeah, people, you people ask athlete, me, right. yeah, people ask me, uh, was it a pretty good, uh, did you really enjoy it? I'm like, I loved it. It was the greatest job in the world. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I got to, I got paid to lift weights. And then I got paid a lot of money to go out and beat people's asses in front of a whole bunch of uh, right. people. And then we got to go out and meet hot chicks. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, and we had enough money to actually date, uh, to take them out fun places. So yeah, now you can't train as hard and you can't go beat people's ass. No, right. I mean, no, it's <laughs> fucking, it's upsetting. Gotta, right? I told yeah. my athletes, I got to go to the money machine on the bad side of town and hopefully get, you know, somebody <laughs> yeah. try to steal my money so I can beat somebody up. I know. <laughs> I mean, You're like, I, I was telling my wife, I'm like, I haven't hit anybody in anger in a long time. But I I'm, know. I'm, 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 I'm frankly, I'm a little nervous when I get the opportunity. <laughs> They're like, uh, you punched that dude and his head popped off. I'm like, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Shouldn't have been standing there. Yeah, yeah, as you fucked that up. Dude, Cal, this has been an epic episode, man. Uh, thank, thanks for your time. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, something to check out? What to look out for? It sounds like if you're not yeah, on your fucking YouTube channel, yeah, no, these guys and, are. And, uh, definitely read Triphasic. I, I bought it and I read it on a, uh, a couple plane flights, and uh, it was awesome. I mean, I, um, and then I got the, the chance to connect with Cal at, uh, at Summer Strong, and it was awesome. It was, uh, it was like finding a kindred spirit in a lot of this stuff. So yeah, thank you well. so much. I appreciate you for having me on and I'll, you know, I'll have a, a couple more books coming out, my GPP book and then triphasic two with all the super maximal and the various concepts that I'll, I'll I've shared, but I, I'm just putting it all together for people so they can connect the dots. And I mean, that's what I find I'm pretty good at is trying a method and connecting the dots. Cause I did not invent eccentric training. We know that obviously. <laughs> but, but, I thought, I thought you I did was, invent eccentric no, training. Oh, I wish, but I actually put it in a sequence that made it usable for athletes and coaches because and nobody did a, a eccentric contraction before cal dates no that's I know, what i right? heard or and i heard nobody invented or did gpp before cal's books come out so right yeah right uh that's true uh, <laughs> i'm not uh, buying it i yeah not convincing I, I i you know and uh the, the funny part is, is you can go read uh uh super training where he talks about you know the russian circuits and this and yeah just yeah so gpp but Cal, right. where should people go to check you out, man? Um, I have a website, xlathlete.com. Is okay. I'm getting actually um, even updated as we speak. So it's uh, it's one area. My my Gmail or my emails, caldeets.com. Everyone in the free world seems to find it at some day or <laughs> yeah. capacity. So I mean, if you can't find my email, yeah, it's a lot a lot of dick pics too. You know? <laughs> oh, so. Yeah, Cal at caldeets.com. Just you know, <laughs> yeah. DM him so. all day with just dick pics. <laughs> Thanks so a lot. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that'd be wonderful. Thank thanks you a lot, so much. John. Yeah, thanks. Uh, all and, the dick uh, pics go to Cal. And, you know, <laughs> what, we don't get any. 
Yeah, well, they well, that's how I know Luke keeps his fucking uh, uh, day going. Dick, 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 dick. It's a lot, it's of, a dicks. lot of dicks. But uh, all right, thanks guys for listening, and thanks Cal again, and I guess until next time. Bye. 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 Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Cal Dietz has a ton of content floating around out there. A good place to start is his website, www.xlathlete. There you can find links to his publications, including several books based on building triphasic training and cycling it appropriately into your program. Cal also has a YouTube channel that's Calvin Dietz, and that will help illuminate the concepts and mechanics of triphasic training exercises. Until next time, bye!